Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming today. And uh, greetings to those of you watching online at Cato.org. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. And it's my uh, pleasure to kick off today's proceedings. Um, should be a terrific discussion. Uh, four great panels. Uh, first, want to thank, there's a lot of people I want to thank very quickly. I want to thank all of our panelists today. Uh, thank them for taking time out of their schedule to come. Many of them come from out of town. Uh, they prepared papers. I want to thank our commentators for having read the papers and agreeing to, to remark. Um, thanks, as always, to our outstanding conference department here at Cato. They run many events here, and they all come off without a hitch. It's a, it's a credit to them. Uh, thanks to our interns who are running around who can help you if you have any questions. Uh, I was a Cato intern once, so I know how that is. Um, and I also want to offer quick thanks to my assistant, uh, Travis Evans, who's helped to organize all the logistics for this conference, which is no simple task. Travis, as usual, uh, uh, handled it with his typical flair. So thank you, Travis, wherever you are running around. Um, the promotional materials for this conference begin with a quote with two quotes, actually, from General Martin Dempsey, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In my personal military judgment, formed over 38 years, we are living in the most dangerous time in my lifetime right now. He said that on uh, February 15, 2012. And just about a year later, he upped the ante. He said, quote, I will personally attest to the fact the world is more dangerous than it has ever been. But I don't want to single out General D D Dempsey. Uh, he's hardly alone. Here are just a few other representative quotes. I won't read them to you. You can see them. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Michael Turner, uh, Senator Inhofe, Senator McCain. Now, I could poke fun and say that the world might look particularly dangerous from the vantage point of Capitol Hill right now. Uh, but that, that wouldn't be fair, not entirely fair, uh, because, let's be honest, many people here in Washington, not just in, on Capitol Hill, and throughout the country um, would agree with these statements. To many Americans, perhaps to most Americans, the world looks uniquely dangerous, and the future more so. But is that accurate? Do we live in a uniquely dangerous world? If our perceptions aren't entirely accurate, if the world isn't, in fact, more dangerous than a decade ago or a century ago, we could blame our 24-7 media. Why not? Everyone else does. Um, Common cliche, of course, holds that reporters don't report on the planes that land safely. There's no story there. The 11 o'clock news never leads with the murder that didn't happen. Likewise, personal information that is not stolen by identity thieves, the wars that aren't fought, the nuclear proliferation that never occurs, the trade and commerce that is uninterrupted by the depredations of criminal gangs or hackers, these stories aren't told. There's little focus on the threats that no longer threaten. Few talk about dangers no longer looming. It's rare to find people even putting today's threats in context with the recent past or the distant past. Today, for just one day, we want to be the exception. Participants in this conference will be presenting research which challenges the common perception that we live in a uniquely dangerous world. We've asked the commentators to push back, to challenge the panelists' general assertions, and to suggest that things are not so rosy as their fellow panelists claim. We believe this public back and forth will make for a more interesting event and ultimately for a more 
uh, for a stronger uh, book that was coming that will come out of this conference. But I want to dwell for just a moment on the subject of threat perception, or more simply, fear, and explain why, um, why it is that I think that the Cato Institute is uniquely suited to host this event today. It starts, as many things do here at Cato, with uh, our nation's founding principles and what some of our, uh, the men who articulated them believed. James Madison, in making the case for restraining the new government's war-making powers, warned the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, quote, the means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. He went on, among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Not quite a decade later, he returned to this theme in a letter to his friend Thomas Jefferson. He knew there would be a demand for military, of course, there had to be, but that some would use fear of foreign threats to boost that demand, to whip up public sentiment in favor of a stronger, more powerful state. Indeed, he perceived, postulated a universal truth, that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended from abroad. Now, James Madison was a pretty special sort of person, but there have been some other clever people over the years who have stumbled upon similar ideas about popular perceptions of threats and of how fear of threats have been used to grow the power of government. Here's one of my favorites from the noted writer, social critic, and satirist H.L. Mencken. The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with a series of, an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. Well, <laughs> are most of the threats that we worry about today imaginary? Could it be that that was the case in the late 18th century when Madison was writing and legislating, or in the early 20th when Mencken was most active? Well, that is the implicit belief, and sometimes the explicit claim, as I noted in the opening quotes, of those in Washington and elsewhere who explain that we live in a uniquely dangerous world and the threats we are facing today are more grave than any confronted by any prior generation of Americans. Here at Cato, we usually take a different tack. Cato books and papers often characterized by a skeptical question mark as with this very conference or a slightly mocking or derisive tone uh, still others are unique for their relative optimism in a town of gloomy gusses. I just love that yellow cover. That work continues. Next week, we will launch a new website called humanprogress.org. Information is available in some handouts outside and on the Cato website. But the theme of this conference is, and of the wider project, including the book that I mentioned, is a question not an assertion of fact. And some of our speakers today might answer, yes, the world is more dangerous, at least within the realm that they are studying. But we sought them out because they have in the past, like Cato scholars for nearly three, decade, three, three decades, dared to ask the question, are we living in a more dangerous world? And some even have had the audacity to answer no. This makes them truly unique, especially in the closeted confines of the Washington, D.C. think tank universe. So 
Cato was very happy to bring them here for one day to dispel the daily drumbeat of bad news and to assemble their different perceptions of threats and, equally important, their ideas about what to do about them in a volume for posterity. As I said at the outset, our commentators have been tasked very specifically with being skeptical of the skeptics. Surely the world is dangerous and more dangerous than you say. And you all in the audience uh, will be able to participate as well. We'll have time for questions and maybe even answers during each session. Uh, there's time as well for discussion during lunch and during a reception that will be held at day's end. I hope that you can stick with us. For those of you on Twitter, both here uh, and watching online, join the conversation. The hashtag is hashtag dangerous world. I wanted to use a question mark, of course, but the Twitter gods don't let me do that. So anyway, dangerous world, no question mark. So sit back, enjoy today's proceedings, and thanks again for joining us. With that, I'd like to welcome our first panel to the stage. Their bios are in the printed materials available in the foyer and also online for those of you observing from a distance. Justin, take it away. I'm going to go ahead and introduce all three of the speakers. Um, I guess we didn't figure out. Uh, Lyle's going to go first. Did either of you have preferences about... No, well then let's just go down the line. We'll go Lyle, Frank, Brendan. So I'll introduce uh, the speakers in the order in which they'll speak, and then uh, Tom Wright, who's agreed to be the discussant today. Lyle Goldstein is associate professor in the China Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. He's also a visiting fellow at the Watson Institute of International Studies at Brown. Uh, his research focuses on various quandaries in U.S.-China relations, including the imperative to enhance maritime cooperation. He also has a book coming out next year, I think, on U.S.-China relations. He earned a Ph.D. from Princeton uh, and has a master's from Johns Hopkins Sice here in town. Frank Gavin is still director of the Robert Strauss Center uh, for International Security and Law and the first Tom Slick professor of International Affairs at the LBJ School at UT Austin. He's the author most recently of Nuclear Statecraft, History and Strategy in America's Atomic Age. And he has a pretty wide ambit, too wide for me to cover, uh, discussing of research interests including US foreign policy, global governance, national security affairs. Um, and as the book uh, title may have indicated, and as you'll hear more about today, um, an interest in nuclear issues has a PhD and MA in diplomatic history from the University of Pennsylvania, and a master's in European history from Oxford, and a BA from University of Chicago. Third speaker, Brendan Green, is a visiting professor at the LBJ School of International Affairs at UT Austin. Uh, he writes on IR theory, national security policy, and military behavior. He has a PhD in political science from MIT and a bachelor's in political science from the University of Chicago. Tom Wright is a fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Managing Global Order Project. Uh, previously, he was executive director of studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and a lecturer at the Harris School of Public Policy at, this will be a trend today, the University of Chicago as well as a senior researcher and really an unsung hero who had a big role in the report produced by the Princeton Project on national security. His current projects include the future of U.S. alliances and strategic partnerships, the geopolitical consequences of the Euro crisis, U.S. relations with rising powers, and multilateral diplomacy. His PhD is from Georgetown, 
uh, and he has an MPhil from Cambridge and a BA and MA from University College Dublin. So with that, I think we'll go exactly down the line. Lyle, go ahead and take it away. Thank you. And you just <coughs> click to the right to advance and left to go back. Okay. All right. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's really a, a great honor to be here. It's my first time here at Cato, and, and uh, this is an institution I've uh, long admired and uh, has, I want to say has made some real contributions to, uh, I'm in the field of East Asian security. In that particular field, I think Cato has done some stellar work, and I can tell you Cato uh, research is on the syllabi that we use at Naval War College, and, and it it's, has an impact, and our students discuss it. Um, let me jump right in. I, I, I do believe that China is one of the, uh, one of the main questions before us, and uh, we have to take it very seriously, although maybe my starting slide is not so serious. I, I will say this slide, uh, you know, in some respects does capture my bottom line. I think, you know, we have to avoid hysteria. We have to um, consider that China has some reasonable security concerns. Uh, you know, we should keep in mind it has no foreign bases. Uh, its its uh, power projection capabilities are very limited. And, and this is crucial. China hasn't resorted to the use of force in a major way in more than three decades. And that, that's pretty striking if you think about some other, the records of some other countries using force. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to be optimistic about. That's right. Now, like a good academic, I'm going to turn this around, though, and, and also suggest that we cannot be, you know, we need to follow this very carefully. That is uh, China's military development. And they are making very rapid progress. So we don't want to fool ourselves. I think there's a whole... Uh, a crowd in the sort of uh, commentariat on military affairs, which you know, kind of laugh off China's military modernization with a, you know, ha, ha, ha. Uh, I'm not in that school of thought. I'm, I'm looking at the details very closely. And China's making very steady advances, I dare say, uh, has surpassed the US military in some areas, uh, I think, some important areas. That, so th this is, we need to keep this in mind uh, as we go about thinking about this, whether uh, we're talking about land power. You know, China continues to build its land forces in a way that uh, considers the possibility it might confront another, you know, major army. It's not, uh, it's not just pursuing sort of non-traditional security. Uh, and we see some dimensions of Chinese power. You know, Ch the Chinese military in some respects is, is, gosh, it's starting to look a lot, you know, th these pictures look familiar. They look like uh, quite similar to counterparts in, in the more advanced uh, militaries. Um, you know, China is the only other country besides the U.S. that has a not one fifth-generation fighter program, but two fifth generation. Here's the J-20, which made a lot of headlines a couple years ago, and the J-31. So I mean, this is a lot of money rolling through China's military industrial complex. Um, and they, you know, it's, I'm frequently asked, you know, well, what, they're doing all this, these things, what aren't they doing? And it's hard for me to answer that question. Um, uh, you know, even looking at, you know, this is a bomber that was designed in the 1950s or, or really even somewhat before. Uh, and yet, if you look at what it's carrying, uh, these lethal anti-ship cruise missiles, if there are any other naval folks in the room, we know that even this aircraft armed with those missiles can pack a major punch. Okay, but of course, uh, they're not just looking at those older designs. Uh, uh, look into what they're doing in... in um, uh, UAVs, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit shocking. Um, now, you know, a lot is made of the carrier. We can talk about the carrier. It is out and about. I believe it sortied uh, yesterday or the day before from Qingdao. Um, so we can talk about this. I mean, 
generally, I think it, it's more shows up China's weakness than its strength. It is not a threat to the United States, this platform. Um, but but it, it does have, there are some things to think about related to carrier. Happy to discuss uh, if you like. Uh, probably more significant for our purposes are the uh, recent uptick in uh, their build rate for surface combatants that, you know, it's, it's quite noticeable. Um, and that has some strategic implications uh, maybe we want to talk about. And, you know, I, I want to emphasize here that, you know, some of these big ships, the carrier and so forth, those are the kind of platforms that make headlines. But uh, the future of naval warfare, uh, ships like these uh, may have more impact. Uh, these, are, these are small corvettes. And yet China has been very weak in the area of kind of small combatants. And, and these are uh, the fact that they have built, I think, 15 of these over the last uh, year and a half. That, not many countries can do that. But you can do that if you have uh, the largest, you know, shipbuilding uh, uh, infrastructure in the world. Uh, on the submarine front, this is an area that I have focused in on a lot. And, uh, you know, it's, it's steady progress on the conventional side. Uh, this submarine, Yuan class, looks to be very quiet uh, and very uh, capable and lethal. Uh, it's not a nuclear submarine by any stretch, but, you know, in some ways, um, conventional submarines can be very uh, effective tools, especially in the complex waters of East Asia. Let me, I'm just looking at the time here. Uh, with this slide, just suggests that we're, you know, we're also looking not just at, you know, platforms, but the how and 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 you know, how do they maintain their their submarines, for example, proficiently? And, but it's the missile forces that have gained uh, real headlines, and China has the most potent uh, conventional missile force in the world. So, you know, th these are things we need to take seriously. A lot has been made of this supposed, uh, it's called the anti-ship ballistic missile. And you see this uh, very striking cover in proceedings which may hint at uh, what... It, now, this weapon has not been tested. It's, it remains a kind of in the rumor phase, but there, there is some evidence that suggests it might exist. But again, I want to highlight that there are weapons that, that really nobody talks about. You don't see it in the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, this is a, a, uh, a long-range cruise missile shot from a truck. But I mean, if you're the Japanese Navy looking at this weapon system uh, for a scenario in the East China Sea, this looks incredibly uh, lethal. That is, you know, a bunch of trucks can take down the Japanese Navy. I, I'm afraid that that could be true. Um, then there are issues like mines. Uh, we follow that very closely. Uh, and uh, the Chinese are doing some things with mines, which definitely should elicit major concern. And the exercise patterns that we look at bear that out. Um, so, you know, I don't think we need to take Chinese military modernization lightly. Okay, that said, though, uh, the thrust of my argument is that... that uh, you know, natural tensions are going to flow from this, you know, a, a rapid rise of, uh, you know, this, this great power, uh, really you know, unprecedented in some ways. However, you know, it's my view that in a lot of ways, uh, U.S. policies are, are making the situation worse rather than better. Um, in the paper I go through, and you see the numbers attached, they kind of rank the, the scenarios in, in uh, sort of how worried I am about them. So you can see I put East China Sea first. And when we look at some of the Japanese literature, we perceive a very high level of uh, um, anxiety and uh, well, anger, I guess we might put it that way, in the Chinese uh, analyses, uh, considering that the U.S. Has, has changed its position on the East China Sea since 2010. Um, here on the South China Sea, uh, I, I view this as also a very uh, worrying situation. And... You know, I, I follow this literature. You know, I watch Chinese TV every night. It's, it's this kind of rhetoric is, um, you know, should be concerning, I think, to us. This is not, this is not normal. <laughs> uh, 
on the Korean side, also a very dangerous situation, dangerous kind of in a different way, but there is a perception in China that the U.S. is kind of angling to create a sort of East Asian NATO. Uh, this is what they talked about. Uh, uh, so that's a worry. I think this is a kind of new worry. Really, the, I, I don't think any of us were too worried about Sino-Indian relations, but we see more and more uh, that this is becoming a, you know, a possible point of conflict, more and more dangerous interaction between those forces, and it seems that the U.S. is playing a role here. I don't think that pursuing joint exercises with the Indian Navy in waters proximate to China, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, to me, that is extremely uh, risky. That's you know, sort of poking the finger in the dragon's eyes, uh, not, not a, a risk-averse policy at all. And the anxiety level is extremely high in Beijing as a result of these kinds of policies. Uh, here's another one. You know, you won't read this in the New York Times that the missiles we sell to Taiwan are, are stored in Guam. Okay, now, if you, you know, walk that through in a scenario, you can see that that, that is a, uh, immediately puts us in the thick of things, immediately. Uh, so, you know, to me, this is, these are the kinds of things that we should worry about. By the way, Taiwan, a very good news story. Check the Washington Post today, a very interesting story about, you know, Peace is breaking out across the Taiwan Strait. In my view, that is fundamentally in the interest of the United States. We, we want to facilitate that, not be storing missiles in Guam for the Taiwan scenario. All right. I think in my final three minutes here, let me see if I can make some substantive points. I, you can see I'm, or have probably gathered that I'm quite skeptical of the rebalance. I think the rebalance itself needs to be rebalanced. Um, let me I'll focus maybe on bullet two and, and five and seven there and just say that, uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to Beijing all the time, usually two or three times a year, and, and I try to get out and about in China, not just talk to their barbarian handlers. The level of anxiety is very high, very high. I mean, it, it is taken uh, as obvious that the U.S. is trying to contain China's rise. Uh, that puts us in a pretty dark place. And I, I, at this point, I'm not even sure how we walk this back. I have a few ideas, but it, it's going to be very difficult. Um, now, you, we need to ask ourselves, looking at point five, should U.S. credibility and is the, balance, the global balance of power under threat when we're talking about a bunch of rocks and reefs in the East China Sea and the South China Sea? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think we need to carefully align our interests, our true interests, and, and our defense policy and think carefully about the meaning of, of rocks and reefs. Um, and then I want to ask uh, about the opportunity costs. I mean, there is so much tension in U.S.-China relations. Things are a little better of late since Sunnylands. I, I, I grant that. Things are a little better. But we want to see real movement on the major issues of the day, whether the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I think China could be helpful, very helpful on Iran. Uh, and that's not even to mention global warming. Uh, there are so many issues where the U.S. and China need to work together, and that cooperation is not happening. There are very few areas where I can report to you that really positive U.S.-China cooperation is, is going on. Uh, so we're in, a, we're in a dark place, in my view. We need to do better. Our diplomacy needs to be uh, much better. Now, what, how can we reform our defense calculus uh, in East Asia? Uh, I think a lot of cuts can be made. I really do. Um, we need to kind of shift around resources. Um, a lot of these forces really wouldn't even help us uh, in the worst case. Um, so, you know, I, my view is a lot of reductions are possible uh, in, in, the, in the areas that you can see there. The Navy, I think, has not invested very wisely. We continue to see the aircraft carriers are a capital ship, um, and that just doesn't, um, is not appropriate in the modern uh, 
uh, threat environment. We need to focus more on, on undersea warfare. You can see that I, you know, I, there are areas we need to have more. We, the submarine fleet uh, should receive more priority. I'm a little concerned about, you know, so a hedge uh, is important. Uh, there are some others there. We can talk about some of the details here, by all means. Uh, I do, do want to say, but, you know, a lot of good news is not reported really widely in the West. But, you know, people might be amazed to hear that there are Chinese troops in Lebanon, for example. Um, you know, that, <laughs> Lebanon, not a, you know, not a great place to be a UN peacekeeper. In fact, a Chinese uh, soldier was killed in Lebanon. So, I mean, I'm saying that there is, when we look at Chinese military development, there are, there are a lot of positive trends. We can also talk about the Gulf of Aden missions. But uh, these, these are not that easy to pull off. And uh, so there's, like I said, quite a bit to be optimistic about. Uh, I'm working now, presently, I won't take you through my cooperation spiral. But we're, you know, right now, we're in kind of an escalation spiral that goes to a very bad place with China. Uh, we need to reverse that, make it into a cooperation spiral. I have developed these spirals across many different area, issue areas, including on the South China Sea. So I'm, I'm happy to, or Southeast Asia, I'm happy to uh, walk you through some of these steps if we have time, maybe in the Q&A or something. Uh, but uh, let's see, 13 minutes, not too bad. Thank you, Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, first, I want to thank my really good friend, Chris Preble, who has done just a remarkable job with this program at Cato. We were in graduate school in the same city at the same time, and uh, I remember when we were both hungry graduate students, not knowing how things would turn out. Now he's in charge of this giant spaceship that uh, is really impressive. Uh, you know, I, He's come a long way you know, as a historian. I don't have any slides. I just have these dusty documents that I like to bring out, and he has this kind of Dizzy, Disney imagined studio kind of stuff. So very, very impressive. Um, uh, but uh, it's really, it's really, really good to be here. And uh, Cato does such extraordinary work. Um, it was probably about 10 years ago, I was here for a conference that Ian Vasquez uh, held on international monetary relations, which was just really uh, a tremendous opportunity. Um, so today, what I'm here to talk about is how to think about the threat of nuclear weapons, particularly as it relates uh, to nation states. And I think we all know that there is an extraordinary amount of alarmist rhetoric about the nuclear threat. If you were to look over the presidential debates and the five presidential candidates uh, uh, over the last uh, 13 years, the only thing they've all agreed upon is that the nuclear threat is the most challenging, imminent, terrifying thing. And they're all, you know, they don't agree about anything else, but that this is priority uh, number one. And of course, in this town, one hears about it uh, all the time. Lots of dire predictions of really, really terrible things happening. Um, I've just actually had the pleasure spending the last two days with Graham Allison at another conference across town. And of course, Graham has made uh, quite a living in the last 20 years predicting that tomorrow something really, really terrible is going to happen. That there's a 50% chance that tomorrow is going to be the day that something terrible happens. And of course, it, thank goodness, he has always been wrong. And I think I'm going to argue today he will continue to be wrong. Now, there's three threats in particular that people focus on. Uh, the first is the threat of nuclear terrorism. The second is the threat of rogue states. 
with nuclear weapons. And the third is the question of what is called nuclear tipping points, dominoes, snowball, uh, whatever um, you might want to call it. And I want to go through each briefly, talk about what the fear was, and talk about why uh, we shouldn't really worry about it. Uh, nuclear terrorism is, of course, self-explanatory. There's been a greater concern since the attacks on the United States in 9-11 that non-state actors who mean to do us harm will acquire weapons of mass destruction and use them uh, against us uh, with devastating results. And this, of course, has been at the center, this concern, this issue at the center, not just of U.S. national security policy, but also uh, a great concern within the strategic studies community, this being seen as really a primary threat. The second threat is, of course, the idea of nuclear proliferation, but nuclear hands going to states that somehow have different qualities or characteristics than the states we're supposedly okay with getting these weapons, so-called rogue states. States that because of their domestic political orientation, because of their behavior in the world, because of the way they treat their own citizens, uh, should not be allowed anywhere near these weapons. And of course, they're in the earlier part of this century was the trinity of rogue states, uh, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Of course, the question of Iraq and nuclear weapons uh, is off the table, but still very much uh, a worry and concern in this town, as everybody knows, is what to do about and how to think about Iran with nuclear weapons. Then the third question, which is a little more technical and in the weeds, but is one that I think if you talk to people in the policy community is one they think about quite a bit, is the idea of tipping points. And that is the notion that if one particular state in a region gets nuclear weapons, it'll produce a cascade effect. So if Iran gets nuclear weapons, that's problematic in and of itself, but the real concern is then Turkey, Saudi Arabia, some of the other Gulf states uh, wanting nuclear weapons. Or if East Asia destabilizes further, um, you might see something like a Japan, uh, a South Korea, even a Taiwan, which of course we know has had a secret nuclear weapons program for quite some time uh, developing nuclear weapons. So there's concern about a proliferated world. So the big question is, of course, why have none of these threats come to pass? Why have we had no nuclear terrorist incidents? Why has the worry and concern over rogue states not sort of met our greatest fears? And why have we not seen um, uh, nuclear terrorism? Now, earlier you had sort of flashed up uh, an article that I had written in International Security, same as it ever was, where... I went and sort of tried to wrestle with some of these issues to try to kind of to actually see how much we should be worried about these threats. And I uh, briefly can go through each, but in terms of nuclear terrorism, you have associated with you a person who knows more about this than anyone, John Mueller, who's written an absolutely terrific, fantastic book on this, Atomic Obsession. But the bottom line really is that the ability to acquire assemble, deliver, and detonate a working nuclear device against the United States really, really hard, right? It's, it's not an easy thing to do. I don't know, and this is one of the things where I think that there's a kind of an arms control community has been slightly irresponsible about this. I don't know if anyone's ever seen this NTI film where they show a bunch of people working in a, a, somewhere in this kind of garage somewhere in Africa assembling this weapon, and then, you know, next day you know New York's incinerated, right? And 
uh, highly irresponsible. This is very, very difficult to do, really, really hard to do, beyond the capacity of many states. And non-state actors, by definition, don't have access to the capacities of states to do these sort of things. So it's very, very hard. There's even some evidence that if you look at the open source literature on some of the, the sort of terrorist groups we're most concerned with, it's not even entirely clear that they, everyone wanted nuclear weapons or if they had them what they actually plan to do with them. So this threat, this is not to say it's a zero threat. It's not to say people shouldn't worry about it. It's not to say that it can happen. But for a variety of reasons, um, it was overinflated. The second, rogue states. There's a variety of issues here. Uh, I had first started thinking of this when I looked at the US response to China's nuclearization in 1964. China, Mao's China being the ultimate rogue state, highly aggressive, you know, treated its citizens terribly, incredibly irresponsible statements about what it would do with nuclear weapons. And then five years after they developed this capacity, we were de facto allies with them, right? Now, this is an N of one. You don't want to sort of generalize necessarily from this. But it was the point was that is it entirely clear that if these states got these weapons, that they would suddenly go crazy and start misbehaving? And there's a lot of reason to be skeptical of that. Jacques Hyman's has written a very good book that shows these states, uh, because of their own internal pathologies, aren't very good at having the capacity to build these weapons. Then there's the whole issue and concern of whether they would share them with, with terrorist groups. There's a whole lot of reasons to find that this argument um, uh, is a particularly, a particularly weak one. Um, on tipping points, I, this one, we haven't seen the tipping points. And there's this, this an open question as to why. It is very clear that there's been less proliferation than anybody would have anticipated or predicted. We all know the famous statement by President Kennedy uh, that he feared a world by the 1970s where you would see 20, 30, 40 nuclear weapon states. Uh, one of the most fascinating documents that I found doing my research was an uh, was a NIO uh, produced document in the early 80s that said the real puzzle for analysts is not why proliferation, but why not proliferation. The far less, and I actually don't, I've got some ideas about this. I'm going to talk about it. But I think, actually, that's the, the, the real question. So at that point, I, you know, I was on the public, I, I've sort of on the public record about all these things. But in the paper that I produced today um, that Chris asked for, um, I sort of put on my historian hat because I wanted to actually try to figure out what was going on here. But why do people, uh, what is driving these, these sort of what some might call threat inflation or these concerns with things that obviously aren't happening. Now, the first instinct, I think, of a lot of us is to reach for what we might call um, sub-rational, sub-optimal solutions, bureaucratic politics, ideology, uh, uh, just the sort of some of the quotes that Chris put up earlier from H.L. Mencken. Just, people just aren't very bright. Right? They just believe lots of really, really not particularly smart things. Um, I'm skeptical of those explanations. Right? I mean, for, for me, when I, when I did the same as it ever was, piece, I said, OK, everyone's wrong here. But, but I want to give people credit as to why they came up to these views. There has to be some underlying explanation to explain what it is. Because when it comes to nuclear policy, this isn't like deciding to close a base or worrying about an agricultural subsidy. This is nuclear weapons. There is nothing more serious that decision makers have to think about than questions surrounding nuclear policy. 
They're not going to go about this in a half-assed way. They're going to take this very, very seriously. So if they have these views, we have an obligation to try to understand them. So what I tried to do in my paper, and it was uh, a little bit going way back to the beginning of the nuclear age, to try to figure out what was going on in US thinking that made it so concerned about this, right? I grew up in a strategic studies literature, uh, and many of my mentors and many of the people here went through the same sort of uh, training where people were told nuclear weapons are stabilizing, uh, they created the long peace, they're not very good for offensive purposes, they're, very, you know, they're, they're, they're not something to be freaked out about. Yet, it's very clear as you go back in the documents, the US is freaked out about them from the very beginning. So I wanted to uh, try to access and think about this. Now, the first way I tried to do this was to think about what I would call the preventative war inclinations. Of course, a lot of the alarmism that we see is based on this idea that we're going to use military uh, force to eliminate Iran's nuclear program. Or if you believe the war in Iraq was a war about preemption or prevention of WMD, and there's a lot of debate about that, uh, to look at that instinct. And it turns out, if you look at in the documents, this is not a post 9-11 phenomenon. This is a continuous instinct in US grand strategy from the beginning, where the US is considered using preventative force against nuclear powers, uh, or against emerging nuclear powers. The US considered it very, very seriously against the Soviet Union in the late 1940s. They considered it very seriously against China in the early 1960s. They even considered it to a certain extent in other cases like Pakistan in the late 1970s. So, and then if you took the argument even further and said, okay, not just preventative inclinations, what about the use of coercion? You see, in fact, the US had this very powerful coercive instinct to do whatever it could to keep people out of the nuclear business. Now, there's an additional interesting thing if you go into the uh, documents on this. It's a instinct oriented not just against adversaries, but against friends as well. And one of the things that I think has been most interesting, and I'm just sort of beginning to wrestle with this whole idea, is that the US nuclear nonproliferation policy, or this instinct, or counterproliferation, has been equal opportunity, applied just as aggressively to friends as adversaries, right? If you look at some of the coercive techniques that are used against countries like Pakistan in the 70s or Taiwan and South Korea, some of the thoughts in the early 60s about sabotaging French nuclear programs, some of the ideas in the early and mid-1960s about driving the British out of the nuclear business, our closest friend, uh, you see that there's, there's got to be something else really going on here. Um, and so I started looking at this and expanding um, this and came up with something that I called strategies of inhibition. And what was clear to me that if you expanded this from just thinking about coercion, the US has developed since the very beginning in an almost a consistent, but in a way that has been missed, what I call a Goldilocks strategy for nuclear non and counterproliferation. On the hot side, prevention and coercion. On the cold side, norms and treaties. And on the just right, alliances and nuclear strategy. And what I found is that the reason, if I were to speculate why the US did this, um, was not because the US did not, as many of my defensive realist mentors say, that the US didn't understand 
the wonderful stabilizing logic of nuclear deterrence, they understood it exactly because they didn't want it oriented against them. In fact, this is one of the interesting things that I think we need to rethink about the United States. It's almost the US as a rogue nation, right? The US never has really been happy with the stability or the status quo. And when you think about it, as the world's strongest state with overwhelming superiority in every conceivable form of power, from economic to soft to conventional, the United States does not like the existence of a weapon that can allow six-rate states to limit its freedom of action, right? And the US has gone to great lengths, including from the very beginning of the nuclear age to cooperate with the Soviet Union. But this is one of the really interesting things that I, I often refer to. When you look at this issue through that lens, it's not my father's Cold War, right? We were there are these episodes of cooperation with the Soviet Union beginning from the early 1950s, but really taking strength in the 1960s and 1970s that show there's something else sort of really going on. I'm about to run out of time here, um, but let me just point out that um, as a historian, what I was trying to do in this paper is not to justify a policy, it was to explain a policy. Is it the right strategy? Is it the right inclination? I would suspect that many in the people in this room would think absolutely not. But I think if you're gonna argue against the strategy, instead of just saying it's irrational or coming up with these sort of sub-rational, sub-optimal explanations, it, we owe it to ourselves to really see the deep historical roots that are driving what we call alarmism and to see its continuities and roots with the, 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 um, have taken place since the very beginning and early parts of the nuclear age. Thank you. Well, thanks for letting me be here. Again, thanks to Chris Prabel and, and everyone who set up this conference. I love these Klieg lights. Uh, it's like I'm in front of a libertarian inquisition. <laughs> Confess, there are no threats. There are no threats, right? Um, but you know, uh, on that subject, you sort of had me at hello. Uh, uh, so you know, I I'm here today to talk about threats to the United States coming from nation states. Uh, and I, I have at least you know, some reason why you should at least pay a little bit of attention. I'm not, I'm not just uh, you know, here on a lark. I'm, I'm writing a book about the causes of American grand strategy. Uh, towards Europe in the 20th century, uh, and I've written a bit about uh, American grand strategy today, uh, a strategy that in academic circles uh, is commonly called primacy. And I would just describe America's strategy uh, as one of forward political and military commitments, uh, largely for the purpose of tamping down on regional security competition elsewhere and its attendant bad consequences. So I think that's basically what the United States is up to in the world. Um, and my goal in the paper is basically to assess the security threats uh, that nation states pose to the United States uh, so that we can see sort of how well primacy is meeting these threats and what kind of benefit it provides. Um, so what I'm doing here is I'm bracketing a number of different threats that our strategy might help us with. Uh, stuff not from nation states, right? That's sort of off the table in the paper. Um, and other sorts of benefits, right? We may get some sort of economic benefit from our alliances abroad, from our commitments abroad. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, last night, Professor Stephen Brooks, who we'll hear from later today, did yeoman's work trying to educate me on this issue. Um, so I, you know, I, I see that as an open question. It's not really what the paper is about. Um, so what I'm focusing on here are the sort of traditionally defined threats to American security. That is threats to its territorial integrity, threats to its sovereignty, and threats to its core domestic values. 
uh, and then uh, a little bit more peripherally, but I think uh, commonly thought of as a threat, is the threat of entering a major war, which uh, you know, we would like to avoid if possible at all. Um, so my argument is basically that the United States does face threats from nation states, um, but they're largely of its own devising. Uh, the, the traditional threats of a, of a nation state that could somehow reach inside the Western Hemisphere and make our life very difficult, I think are probably gone for good. Um, but the U.S. alliance system does run some risks of involving us in a major power war uh, and possibly even a nuclear war. Uh, so I think we should think very carefully about that alliance system. I'm starting to think carefully about it. And so these are sort of some of my preliminary thoughts. Um, so the first point. Uh, historically, the United States hasn't faced very many threats. Uh, another uh, professor in the audience, uh, Eugene Goltz, uh, has, has cleverly quipped that, uh, that the United States has to its north, Canada, to its south, Mexico, and to the east and west, fish, right? It's a very secure state, right? <laughs> very few states could get at us. We've had longtime military and economic dominance of the Western Hemisphere. Um, however, in the 20th century, this really did change. Uh, there arose a great risk, which is that the vast power of the Eurasian supercontinent could be politically united and turned against the Western Hemisphere. Um, this was essentially the fear that I think largely drove a lot of American policy against Nazi Germany uh, and against uh, the communist Soviet Union. These were powers that so could plausibly conquer and unify Eurasia. Um, and in the battle of the supercontinents between Eurasia and, West, and, and, and the American supercontinent in the Western Hemisphere, uh, it doesn't look good for the Western continent. Um, now, it, it, it's, it's not even really the threat that we often think of, which is an actual fight in the Western Hemisphere. I think even before the advent of nuclear weapons, it was probably impossible to seriously uh, threaten the territorial integrity of the United States. Uh, the advent of land-based air power against sea forces is really simply too great. Um, and the vulnerability of any force that did get ashore near uh, the heart of American power would ba face basically the same problem. Um, but you could potentially damage severely uh, and make us very uncomfortable uh, on American sovereignty or its core values. Um, defending the Western Hemisphere would require massive cooperation from everyone else in it, which might or might not be forthcoming. This would probably require some sort of political changes, uh, possibly some sort of federation on the good side uh, or uh, political changes at the point of the sword if necessary. We would need to have a lot of, of military bases and places and we would need that cooperation. Um, furthermore, building a large military uh, and economically reordering the hemisphere to defend it uh, would likely require a massive increase in the size of the central government. Um, and, and, and this is often feared to lead to a garrison state, right? One where sort of basically liberal way of life, uh, a liberal economy uh, are, are more or less abolished. Um, it's unclear how long the American people would tolerate living in such a position. Uh, so we might make concessions on our sovereignty uh, in order to, to try and get out of the conflict. Um, but even if, even if we didn't decide to do that, um, an empire abroad and a garrison state at home is not a great recipe for American liberal values. So it really did make a lot of sense, I think, to sort of nip that kind of threat in the bud, right? Let's not let the Eurasian supercontinent uh, unify. Um, so I have good news. We will never face this problem again. 
uh, this is not going to happen. There is no way that anyone is going to be able to reach inside the Western Hemisphere and affect our political life in that kind of dramatic fashion. Um, and, and, and it's for a couple of reasons, which I belabor at great length in the essay, but I'll, I'll just, just lay them out quickly here, which is that the military problem is basically impossible now. Uh, which is the advent of nuclear weapons is going to make conquest extremely difficult, but even setting them aside, uh, the power in East Asia in particular uh, is separated by terrible geographic barriers, which are going to make it really hard to engage in large-scale conquest, large-scale military operations. Furthermore, uh, the only candidate uh, potential hegemon is China, and, and they have a problem that, that Stalin and Hitler didn't have, which is that they'll have to build both land forces and naval forces at the same time instead of optimizing them. Um, so the, the, the basic point here is that uh, you know, the kind of threats that we thought we faced and that I think in some sense still drive uh, the American national security class today are basically gone. And this has a remarkable effect, which is it means that the balance of power abroad does not matter for American security. It simply doesn't matter. Right? We're not going to see the one balance of power that would be really threatening. Right? So other ones, uh, now maybe they matter for economics. Right? Maybe they matter for other things. I, I'm, I'm open to debate there. But from, from how we've traditionally defined security in this country, they simply don't matter. Um, doesn't mean that wars are over. We might very well see wars. Um, but they're not wars that we have to care about for security reasons. Um, however, our current strategy cares a great deal about wars anyway. Um, the purpose of American political and military commitments is to deter those wars, but not just that, to deter security competition itself. It's to convince other unnamed Eastern powers uh, that there's no hope in building up your military against what the United States has, so you shouldn't even try. It's to reassure our allies that you don't need to secure yourself. Uncle Sugar's going to do the task for you. Um, so, uh, you know, and this will prevent the kind of arms races and spirals of hostility and conflicts over flashpoints that we've often seen in great power politics in other regions. Um, I think these commitments are problematic, though. Uh, first of all, uh, the many barriers to, to a potential hegemon's conquest uh, exist for a lot of other kinds of wars. Um, and so this is going to make them very unlikely. Uh, the states of East Asia, in particular, have a tremendous incentive to remain at peace, uh, given the very high cost of war and the incredibly profitable returns to peaceful trade that they're experiencing right now. If we're dealing with normal states in world politics, primacy probably isn't adding very much to anything, uh, although we're certainly spending a great deal of money on our grossly oversized military uh, that you know, is, is now just going south of $700 billion a year. Um, but, but the, the common response, and I think a worthwhile one, is we may not be dealing with normal states, either now or in the future. Uh, one of the great sad facts of international relations is that you can't actually have any certainty about what other states are going to do. And history does show that sometimes states embark on stupid, disastrous military projects to their own ruin, um, and possibly to the ruin of others. Um, sometimes states are absolutely paranoid about their security even when they have no good reason to be. Uh, people in the academy like John Mearsheimer and other academic realists emphasize the importance of uncertainty uh, in driving state behavior. You never know what you're going to get, so the only solution is to have as much power as possible. 
right? Um, and sometimes states fight for regions, reasons of prestige or status or other non-security goods. They value these things very highly in some cases. So we could end up with states like that. Um, but the, the second problem, I think, with, with our strategy of forward political and military commitments is that these are the kinds of states that we will be least likely to be able to deter or reassure. Um, any kind of sort of revisionist state, uh, whatever their motives, whatever their mix of motives, um, will have to take tremendous risks and bear large costs in order to change the status quo. And it's, it's unclear to me why we would expect a priori that um, the threat of American power becoming involved would be the decisive thing that would deter this kind of state. Um, I think this is particularly true with military confrontations that are not likely to be about taking and holding territory where you can simply deny the opponent uh, his aims, but rather build battles of will and resolve uh, to demonstrate how many costs you're willing to bear. Um, so it, it's not clear to me that, uh, that, 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 that this kind of state will be all that interested in American capability as the, as the decisive, decisive additional factor. Um, it's, all, you know, it's also unclear to me why this kind of state would find America's threats and promises credible. Um, we're far away. We don't intrinsically care about anything that would be under dispute. Uh, local revisionists are close by and they care a great deal about the matters under dispute. Um, plus, you'll always be able to find nattering nabobs of negativism like me, right, in the American domestic populace saying we shouldn't care and we should stop having these commitments and other people are likely to notice that. Um, furthermore, if you're really worried about uncertainty in the international system, you know, st states have historically been very uncomfortable with alliances for this reason. Uh, and revisionists either sort of allied with us or, or against us are not likely to find our promises, I think, especially credible in a lot of scenarios. Um, so in short, uh, a state that's willing to run extraordinary risks, I think, isn't adding a terrible amount more by risking US intervention. And a normal state isn't going to cause problems if we're gone. Um, finally, I, th I think I'd say that you know, if alliance management fails, we run into a third problem. Uh, and, I, and I think that ultimately, in some cases, it probably will fail uh, if it becomes relevant at all, which is that the United States probably will fight an unnecessary war to protect its strategy. Um, the entire strategy depends on the credibility of its threats and promises. The key question for potential revisionists is not how much capability does the United States have, it's how much will does the United States have. Um, and if we show that we're not willing to fight in one tertiary interest that looks a lot like other tertiary interests, um, I think decision makers will fear that some states in the region will draw the obvious conclusion, which is that our other commitments are not to be taken seriously either. Um, historically, American decision makers have cared very much about this. Right? Uh, we've done all sorts of really stupid things uh, in order to, to protect the idea that our commitments to Europe were credible. Uh, so so I, I think that that's something that American decision makers will defend, I think unnecessarily, uh, but potentially costly. Uh, you know, the, the, the fatalities of the Iraq war are about what we would lose if one aircraft carrier went down, right? And, and we probably couldn't quickly get up to the amount of money that we spent in Iraq, uh, but, but we would certainly be expensive and costly. 
Um, so I'll just finish by saying that, you know, one, one of the key things that, that we expect our alliance commitments to be able to do for us is to help us manage other states so that this kind of war doesn't happen, so that revisionists are deterred or reassured or whatever we want so that competition doesn't ensure. Um, and that this should be particularly easy because we're strong and others are weak, right? And so we should have all the leverage. And I guess I would just like to suggest that there are some cases in which it will be the other way around. Uh, if you have a strong ally who has goals you don't share, who goes off the reservation and does things you don't like, uh, you can afford to sit out of the fight, right? You can afford to see if they can handle it on their own, to punish them, to try to get leverage with them, um, because they have a chance of at least keeping going by themselves. But if you've decided that you're committed to some other state's survival and they're weak, and they go off the reservation because you, they care about the issue far more than you care about it, um, there, there's a good chance that, that basically they'll be the ones managing you. And I suspect that no matter how one of these conflicts gets started, we will grudgingly and against our will get drawn onto the side of our allies in some way. Um, not necessarily something that's going to happen, right? Uh, but something I think could happen that we should think about. Um, so in conclusion, you know, I, I think in terms of nation states, uh, you know, the life we save should be our own. Uh, you know, and our, our attempts to sort of help others are really sort of have the potential to get us into trouble. So thank you very much. Thank you, um, thank you, Justin. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me here today. It's a real pleasure uh, to be here, and it's a real pleasure to have read three such interesting um, papers. Um, in his introduction, Chris said that the idea was to have the paper presenters talk about the um, talk about why the world isn't so dangerous as maybe the common conventional wisdom would have it, and then to have commenters um, push back. Um, I work at Brookings at a project called the Managing Global Order Project, which is, I think, sort of the anti-Cato uh, <laughs> title you could imagine. Um, we're, we're in the process of um, changing our name, and, and last night, I was talking to Justin, and he quite liked the alternative name, Ending Global Order, or Leaving Global <laughs> Order, uh, which I guess is what you would have here, Chris, if, if a similar project uh, were to take place um, at Cato. Um, but it's a, real, it's a real pleasure, and I found that the, the, the papers are fascinating, and there's lots of food for thought. I want to talk about Lyle's first, um, then talk about Brendan's, and then finish with, with, with Frank's. And, uh, so it's slightly different to the order that, um, that they were uh, presented in. I just open with one sort of general comment at first about the, uh, about the dangerous world um, theme. I think one contradiction or one uh, difficulty that you have in sort of making the case that you have to change a strategy because the world isn't so dangerous. Um, it's if the world's not dangerous, why change a winning formula? You know, like, why would you, uh, why would you want to dramatically alter a strategy if actually the world looks okay? Um, like, what, what's the pressing need? And I'll come back to that once or twice, but that's why I think it's very interesting to start with Lyle's paper, because he, in a way, um, advances a message that calls for a, a, a massive change in U.S. strategy, but he says it's because the world is actually quite dangerous. So in, in the first half of his presentation and throughout the paper, he shows that there are real challenges that China poses to U.S. interests in Asia 
as they are presently defined you know, by Washington. And I think Lyle's point is that the interests don't necessarily need to be defined you know, in that way, and that you could have a, a, a more stable equilibrium if there was a change in policy. But the current you know, trajectory is quite dangerous, and, it, and, and, it, and, it, and it's dangerous because of the military threat posed by China in some of these key um, flashpoints. And I think in a way that's, a, that's a, a somewhat of a stronger argument as to why you would try to convince people to change the current strategy, that you're saying it's on the road to you know, Armageddon of sorts or on the way to a catastrophe, and that if we don't change direction, you know, we're more likely to be in a very bad situation than to be just spending a few extra hundreds of billions of dollars, um, at, you know, but be in a relatively benign um, situation. Um, so last point is the world is dangerous, but that's why we must change. China does pose a real challenge. And he, but the current policy, he says, is basically um, is backwards of what it should be. And my understanding as a non sort of China specialist of US Asia policy is US China policy is largely about the rest of the getting the rest of the region right first. And if you get the rest of the region right, then China policy will follow. And the logic here is that you don't want to just focus on the bilateral relationship. You want to focus on the regional order, alliances, ensuring that alliances are healthy and, and, and vigorous and, and building regional institutions and promoting sort of trade. And if the multilateral trade stuff doesn't work, work through TPP and try to advance that and basically try to provide public goods, work with others in the region to create a very strong US-based security order and broader regional order that China wouldn't be able to challenge if it wanted to and would ultimately come to join because it would see it in its interest to do so. And what, what, what Lyle says is that there are various sort of flashpoints you know, in that because Chinese nationalism, Chinese military capabilities, the volatility of the region, nationalism in other countries, um, all uh, could conspire someday to, to have this go off track in sort of a 1914 style um, fashion. And he says that the, the way to sort of to, to address that is for the US to rebalance to rebalance, which is essentially to work more on the bilateral track. Critics would say this is sort of a G2 uh, style sort of mindset. You know, that you want to work with Beijing primarily, and if you get China policy right, then the region will be, will be right. So it's sort of the reverse um, philosophy from what the Obama administration, particularly in its first term, um, has been following. I'd just like to make a few sort of observations. The first is that this, this strategy basically heads in the direction of a deal with China, right? It's essentially saying that if you want stability in East Asia, you need to do a, you know, have diplomacy to do a deal, a bargain, maybe not a grand bargain, but a bargain to um, ease tension on the flashpoints. Such a bargain, if it were to happen, is often sort of called the concert you know, approach, you'd have a concert of Asia or some sort of sharing of power with China in Asia. It seems to me that this, um, and I, I don't think Lyle necessarily disagrees with this, that this uh, bargain would be very expensive. You know, liberal internationalists who um, I often frequent among uh, like to claim that the bargain with China would be relatively costless, right? So if we give China extra seats at the I extra say at the IMF or at the World Bank or extra say in some institutions, Western U.S. you know run institutions, that that will be satisfactory. This is sort of John Eikenberry's argument that they will be stakeholders within the order. I think it's much more likely that they'll actually demand things they really really want, like a sphere of influence over. Taiwan or a greater say in the South China Sea or these sort of rocks that you spoke about you know, earlier. And there's no question that that will be expensive and painful 
for the United States to give, not just because of any material loss that will come out of those individual cases, but also because of the broader sort of reputational um, issues. It would be unprecedented, certainly in post-World uh, War, World War II world politics. The second thing is it will be extremely difficult to implement. I mean, to actually try to unwind the existing status quo or order and to go to a sharing of power with allies who are, you know, very, very aggrieved and concerned about what this means, a huge uncertainty about where it would stop, you know, what that bargain would be. And the idea of a few, a small number of statesmen getting together in sort of a 19th century style fashion and carving up, you know, the, the map of Asia in similar way to Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt carving up Europe. I mean, almost beggars belief in its complexity and its controversy. And so I think that that, that sort of unwinding of the status quo will be extremely um, difficult to accomplish, um, and you would, and you would have questions afterwards. How would allies react? Would they take matters into their own hands? Would they get nuclear weapons? Would they engage in other types of balancing, or would they just end up going with China? Would China be satisfied if the bargain wasn't satisfactory? What would they read into U.S. Um, long-term intentions? Um, I think we. You know, obviously people, reasonable people will very much disagree on these matters. I mean, if you believe that the current trajectory is headed toward a 1914 scenario or that's high probability, then you may be more willing to take the risk. And um, whereas if you think, as, as I do, that it's a little more stable, then you would think that the instability would really emanate from the process of unwinding and that sharing of power in that sort of traditional uh, geopolitical sense. But I think that's where the debate is. And I think it's a very reasonable Sort of, it's a you know, it's a very substantive uh, disagreement, and um, that brings me on to um, Brendan's paper. And in a way, this was the sort of the broadest sweep paper, you know, in, in terms of providing an overall um, grand strategy for uh, for the for the United States and why the current approach is um, is sort of headed in the wrong direction. And I think what, one question that you know that I think really jumps out, and I think is a core question. For anyone who really believes in the retrenchment sort of position, and, and, and by retrenchment, I think it's worth sort of defining that because, you know, there's a retrenchment of the sort that says the U.S. should not get involved in Syria, right? That's not really what you're saying. I mean, you certainly, I think, would agree with that, but, but what you're saying and what retrenchment sort of scholars are saying is the U.S. should actually unwind all of its formal or many of its formal commitments that it currently has. So to the extent that the United States is committed to defending allies you know, in Asia or in Europe by treaty, that those should be somewhat unwound or that that extends, um, the, shake your head vigorously if you disagree, if I'm reading you completely wrong. But I think it's, you know, it's basically saying that the, there needs to be a dramatic sort of unwinding of those, um, of those alliances. And, and Brennan says that, that you know, the reason for that is that the United States really only should be concerned about a potential hegemon. That the, if China were a hegemon in Asia or Russia were a potential hegemon in Europe, that that's a threat because then they could use that basis in classic offensive realism logic, you know, to put a to put a hold or a lock over what the U.S. needs to survive and prosper as a, as a democratic market and power. And that because that is extremely unlikely and isn't really on the horizon, and because there are lots of different balances within these regions that would end up checking Russia or China or any other potential um, hegemon, the United States doesn't need to be worried. And I think that really makes this one question jump out, which is, to what extent should the United States be worried about security competition or actual interstate conflict in other regions? 
I think that's just a huge sort of difference between those of us who you know, sort of favor the status quo or some version of it and those, and those of you who sort of believe that it is headed in the wrong, headed very much in the wrong direction. Because if you, um, if you believe that, um, that comp, you know, that the security competition um, doesn't matter, um, then, you know, the United States can just withdraw in a way. The rest of the world may become more dangerous. You know, these countries may even fight each other, but the United States will be safer in a more dangerous world because it won't have any risk of actually getting involved in that. Um, U.S. strategy, as I understand it, since the 40s has basically been, and, and you say this in the paper, the purpose of U.S. strategy has been to dampen security competition in the rest of the world. So the idea has been that to the extent you can reduce from whatever means necessary security competition all over the world, that, that ultimately will work to the benefit of the United States. So it's, it's, it's a real sort of reversal of U.S. strategic purpose. And I think it's a very, it's a very dramatic reversal, and it's one I think that is, is going to be a tough sell, you know, because you need to basically say, I mean, I could make a lot of arguments as to why I think, um, why I would disagree with it. I, I think if you did have an interstate conflict in Asia, I mean, the repercussions on the global economy and the, the instability that would result, the possibility would drag the United States in any way, like the 1914 did ultimately, or even 1939, 40-41 uh, did anyway, it would be quite high. So I think there's a real sort of risk there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that I think would merit a lot further, a lot further um, discussion. Um, the second point is um, that this is a revolutionary, you know, it's a revolutionary strategy. And, and uh, in, in the IR sort of terminology, um, you know, it's a revisionist strategy. And I think that the, 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 the uh, balance of that has to, you, you need to basically make a very compelling case as to why you would have a revisionist strategy. You know, if we were starting from scratch, you would never create all of the institutions we have today, partly because it would be impossible to create them. I mean, there would be no uh, demand for a NATO. But in many ways, we inherit this. This is our strategic inheritance for good or bad. It's what we have as the status quo. It's, it's the conservative position is that that is sort of the way things are. And so rather than saying, you know, would a different configuration potentially be stable? You know, maybe if we had a spheres of influence, if that's what we inherited, it maybe it would, be, would be stable. But getting from here to there could ensure that it wasn't um, that it wasn't stable because it is sort of a revolutionary act. And so, what is the reason why we need to make that shift? If the world isn't you know so dangerous, why do we need to shift um, to sort of that massive retrenchment where security competition would work to America's? Um, Favor. And the final point is just on alliances, um, and because you get into this in the paper as well about how you know alliances don't really accomplish that much and are actually also quite dangerous because they can potentially drag the U.S. into these conflicts. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're very sort of familiar with it, but Michael Beckley at Tufts has an interesting new paper um, which he presented at APSA a few weeks ago, where he goes through a lot of these and basically it basically makes the argument that you know there's almost no cases of entrapment. That the, the, the cases that are often put forward, like Vietnam or others, the evidence is sort of lacking. And there are plenty of cases of U, the U.S. restraining allies, um, like in Suez or you know, in South Korean retaliation to the assassination of its president or other cases, where the US, or escalation within conflicts, maybe on the reverse side for allies are, are encouraging the U.S. not to not to get, you know, not to um, go nuclear or, or to, to escalate the conflict. So um, the role of alliances, I think, is also, it's also central. I've, I've, I'm 
need to move on to Frank's paper. Um, now, this, was a, this is also a fascinating um, paper. It was quite different to the others because it was sort of focused on the nuclear uh, proliferation um, side of it. There was also some really interesting things in your paper that weren't really in your talk. So I'm going to bring up one or two of those, if you don't mind. But, um, um, but uh, Frank's uh, uh, argument is, you know, why, 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 why all the hysteria about nuclear weapons or nuclear proliferation? Uh, and it brings me back to the initial theme in a way that you sort of say one of the central puzzles for political scientists is why proliferation didn't happen. But then I, I think in a way you answer your own question by saying that the U.S. has been so obsessed by nonproliferation you know, that maybe that is the reason why the world is less dangerous than it might have appeared it would be at the beginning of the 60s. I mean, if there is this national strategic um, commitment to nonproliferation, and there's a, there's, a, there's a line here that in the paper, the, the main picture of nuclear nonproliferation from the mid-60s on is that of Russians and Americans working together to keep allies and ideological fellow travelers like West Germany, Japan, China, and Yugoslavia down you know, in terms of the, their nuclear programs. I mean, is that, a, is that a success? Like, should we look back and that say that in some way, what seemed to be an obsession actually yielded some result? I mean, what was the cost of basically pushing things um, in, that, in, the, in that direction? Um, you have an interesting point about the US as a revolutionary power, um, and, 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 but the implication is in some way that that's a negative, particularly when it comes to um, non-proliferation. I think there are obvious, uh, instances where it is a negative, you know, and we can point to some of the recent past where that's true. Um, and you're right that if others got nuclear weapons, it would be to deter the U.S. from intervening. Um, and again, the assumption in a way is, that would that be such a bad thing? But if you look at 1991 and Saddam, I mean, would the U.S. want to have the option of being able to, you know, liberate Kuwait or push Saddam back? Uh, I mean, it seems to me that was a pretty good case where nonproliferation allowed the U.S. freedom of maneuver that worked uh, not only to the national interest, but also to the wider sort of global um, interest. And then there's the collapse um, argument. If, if you do have proliferation and these states collapse like Pakistan, um, what, what are the repercussions um, there? I want to finish on a note that I think wasn't in the talk, but is a really interesting and important point, because one of the central arguments in Frank's paper is this idea of horizontal history, that you, you, you have a quote here that, you know, you said that one of the things that surprised you um, in your research was that the strategic literature was crisp, clean, driven by a powerful logic. So the shelling, all this stuff was really, really clear, but the policies themselves are incredibly messy and pulled in different directions, basically saying that, you know, we can have all the theories and ideas and strategies we want, but when they're implemented, it's a complete nightmare. It's a bit of a mess. Everything goes everywhere, and we don't really know if it will work, and we don't know if it will, if it will function well. And that just brings me back to the first point I made. You know, if, if we are, should be humble about the ability of policymakers to implement the strategies that we all come up with, you know, so often, What's to make us think that a very dramatic revolutionary strategy like retrenchment in response to a dangerous world would be implemented in a way, you know, that you all would be comfortable with, that you would feel that it actually achieved the, um, the, the goals that you set down, given its complexities, given all the various moving parts, you know, is there a risk um, that you wouldn't sort of recognize the strategy uh, once it was actually operationalized and, and, and that it wouldn't be one that you would agree with in terms of the ultimate effects? So um, I'll leave it there, but thank you very much.
It's almost becoming common that people hit the mark on time. It's a little scary uh, from my vantage point. So that went great. Um, I'm a little wondering whether we should have a minute or two of response, or do you guys think that you can weave in your responses Let's to go Tom straight to Q &A. through the Q&A? Okay, that works fine. So the ground rules that you've heard a million times before, please wait for the microphone. Uh, you see the people who will bring you the microphone. Please identify yourself. I can see reasonably well into the back. Um, please identify yourself once you get the microphone, and please be short and pithy. Um, let's start right here with the gentleman uh, right there. Uh, <clears throat> thank you all. Uh, Lyle Goldstein, you talked about <clears throat> islands. And, yourself. Oh, excuse me. Rafael De Janeiro, True North Projects. Um, Lyle Goldstein, you talked about islands and rocks. A lot of this has been very theoretical. Could you... I get them all confused. Could you run down a list of key islands and rocks, um, and or just the top three or whatever? Uh, the, uh, I worry that the Philippines uh, could get us involved in World War III. So. You can answer from there. It's fine. Yes, I'm, I'm glad for that question. I share your concern. Uh, my view is that the, the term island is very charitable. Uh, <laughs> And by the way, there is a law of the sea, meaning that accrues to islands, so there's actually some legal squabbling. But uh, part of the definition of an island, according to the law of the sea, that it has to support in, it, in itself habitation, um, which most of these features do not. And by the way, one of the only ones in the South China Sea that actually might qualify as an island somehow is, uh, belongs to, uh, or, uh, is owned by Taiwan. Which, by the way, I, th I think that very fact should make us scratch our heads a little bit on the whole uh, dispute of claims uh, here in the South China Sea. But, the, you know, really we're talking at the island. I don't want to use the word. I, I, I really prefer to use the word rocks and reefs. Some of them are, are indeed submerged uh, during uh, high tide. And most of them, some of them have a few uh, garrisons. And, and those are because the various countries, including China, were able to build up structures on them. Um, so just very briefly, uh, in, in the South China Sea, in dispute, you have uh, the Spratleys, um, which are something, some several dozens of uh, features. And by the way, China only occupies uh, seven of those features. The number occupied by Vietnam, for example, is something like 26 or something. So, you know, it's, it's you know, one can, could argue, as, as several have, that China is kind of playing catch up here. It, in sort of fortifying its claims, although of course it does claim Taiwan's uh, 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 island, which you you know might legitimately call an island. There are also the Paracels, by the way, which are in the northern South China Sea. Now the Paracels are somewhat larger; they actually have uh, some you know basing and and uh, you know some modest habitation, and those are contested with the with the um, between Vietnam and China. China basically uh, conquered them in, in 1974. Um, and then in the, now the East China Sea, and by the way, I, put, I flagged the East China Sea as the most dangerous flashpoint in uh, East Asia right now, although I agree with you that the Philippines could, could light off World War III, I agree with that. Um, but in the East China Sea, it's some uh, number of rocks. Uh, really, nobody even thinks that they support habitation. Uh, Japan claims to administer them, but yet there are no Japanese on the islands. I think there might be a lighthouse, uh, mostly goats. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can state, you know, I'm, I'm 100% confident that 
it is not worth fighting World War III over these rocks. Uh, you know, are these countries likely to play some games, largely for irrational reasons? Uh, there's all kinds of irrationalities in politics, in American politics, too. There's a lot of irrationalities in East Asian politics, both in China and in Japan. Uh, but, you know, to, to my view, it's quite clear that those irrationalities should not drive our defense policy. Well, right on the aisle there. Hi, Rob Levinson, Bloomberg Government. Um, obviously, underlying sort of all your uh, sort of if proposed revisions to U.S. strategy is obviously probably a, quite a downturn in U.S. defense spending. You know, and if we, if we look at, you know, U.S. defense spending since World War II, it follows a pretty predictable pattern. We fight wars and the budget goes way up and it comes way down. And if you look at the troughs, the post-Korea, post-Vietnam, post-Cold War troughs, in real terms, it's almost exactly the same number. It's $380 billion dollars doesn't vary by more than $4 billion. Um, we're, we're sort of headed downward now. And I wonder if you think is absent sort of the changes that any of you are advocating, do you think there's anything that says that this time it's going to be different, that we're not going to head back down to those same sort of trough levels of sort of peacetime U.S. military spending? Or should it go down even further and that will take, you know, sort of major revisions in strategy? Thanks. Big question. Where will it go and where should it go? So, I mean, I guess I would just say that, uh, you know, the reason it's going down at all is because of this jerry-rigged sequester deal that nobody believed would ever happen. The Pentagon didn't believe it would ever happen. People are still trying to believe it's not happening. Uh, everybody wants to undo it. Uh, you know, so my my read on the situation is, yeah, you know, the the, the there was certainly going to be a drop from Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, you know, but I did, I, you know, I don't see any evidence that we were headed lower. Uh, you know, in fact, one of the, you know, basically one, one of the big ways that defense spending ends up getting controlled is every once in a while we do have one of these budget control acts. Right. Um, but but absent that, it's harder, uh, you know. And so, I mean, the, the truth is, is the economy has grown, you know, has grown very fast since World War Two. Right. Uh, you know, in, in real terms, we probably have a lot more capability than we had 20 years ago, but it's much lower uh, percentage of our national wealth. Uh, so. Yeah, we could keep spending it. We could we could keep spending it forever. And I think that the 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 political will is probably that's the easiest solution. As big of a question as I thought. Let's go uh, right there to Steve Brooks, I think. Yes, okay. Thanks. I'm uh, Steve Brooks from Dartmouth. I really enjoyed this uh, panel. Um they were great presentations and I also um, had many reactions as the presenters were moving forward, but then almost many of the things, especially for um, the Gavin and Green papers, um, Thomas Wright, you know, said many of the things that I would have said in response. In particular, with respect to uh, Frank's paper about, I I do think the answer is U.S. policy, and so then I do think the question is, was that not a success? Why was that costly? Why wouldn't you want to continue that? And in particular, given that many of the states that we're talking about that might be proliferators um, are U.S. allies, and given that a lot of the leverage that we have over them on these questions flow from the alliance commitments that we have, then presumably uh, eliminating the alliance commitment would vitiate um, that leverage. And so I think that's an important um, potential cost to consider um, for a retrenchment uh, strategy. Um, 
Very quickly on uh, what was just mentioned about the U.S. defense spending, I, I do think that it's important for us to underline the significance of the point that um, uh, was just mentioned about U.S. spending as a percentage of GDP, um, because the number $700 billion um, sounds very big, and, and it is very big, um, but it is going down, and it is the case that even without uh, sequestration that we were headed, you know, 2016, 2017, roughly, to being uh, below 3% of GDP uh, spent on defense. The world average is 2.5% of GDP on defense. So if we are at, you know, 2.8, 2.9, or whatever, um, just marginally above the world average, is that a crazy amount to be spending on defense? Um, more importantly, um, my perspective would be that many of the arguments for why you would want to reduce defense spending um, on economic grounds, in terms of the opportunity cost and drain and fiscal um, implications, are very much lower when you're at 27 2.8% of GDP. And um, final point would be that to get that number way lower and therefore get a lot of the benefits in terms of having um, a big kind of economic peace dividend, I mean, you're going to have to really, you know, cut defense. Um, and then the issue would be, um, are some of the things that uh, Lyle Goldstein would maybe want to do with his strategy, are those going to not even be possible? And that finally I've said a lot of things. just want to very quickly ask a very specific question to Lyle about uh, submarines, which is we're not doing as much of this as you say you would like us to do. Um, it would probably be expensive to do that. And so I would just like to hear very briefly about um, why are we not doing more with respect to submarines? And then secondly, what are the kind of, um, on the strategic side, um, costs to shifting to a submarine, um, more submarine-based force? Um, is it going to be um, something which the Chinese would be like, oh, great, now the U.S. is doing submarines, so I don't have to worry as much, I'm not as concerned. Or might the opposite occur in which they say, I can't now see what the U.S. is really doing, and I'm actually a little bit more concerned about that. So anyway, I'm just wondering about... Um, is there a downside to shifting to subs? Um, and is that therefore the explanation for why we're not doing more of that kind of shift on the strategic side? Thanks. I'll just go very quick and then turn the floor over to you. Uh, the, you know, the correct metric is welfare. Uh, you know, if you waste money, you're wasting money, uh, whether or not there are any secondary effects that might affect other things. Uh, you know, so... Uh, we, if we, you know, we had the world's strongest military by a large gap at the at the Clinton trough. Uh, you know, that's three hundred and fifty billion dollars ago. Uh, you know, it, it, in politically, probably maybe impossible to get back there. Uh, but you know, theoretically, there's no reason why we couldn't be very successful. Do a lot of things we might want to do with that kind of military. Could save a ton of money doing it. Uh, we wouldn't be crippling ourselves or anything like that uh, if we had the appropriate strategy to go with it. So I should probably be clear. I, I, I'm agnostic on sort of the policy, um, and I think both Tom and Steve's uh, uh, suggestions I mean, are absolutely right. I think the answer is in there. Uh, I would say that I was attempting to explain, not justify, in the sense that um, I, I find our debates over grand strategy very, very dissatisfying because people are usually promoting their various policy preferences uh, without trying to explain necessarily the origins or why people do things. And there were several puzzles I saw. One, this alarmism. Two, this continuity that went to the beginning of the nuclear age. 
um, three highly aggressive policies throughout, ranging from coercion and prevention to fairly large alliance commitments to um, very forward-leaning nuclear strategies. Uh, Brendan and Austin Long have an absolutely terrific paper on this. Then four, my general sense that policymakers aren't idiots, right? And so I think a lot of our sort of explanations of these kind of things are, well, you know, people are just doing stupid things. And as a historian, I sort of feel I have an obligation to get sort of a little deeper at it. And so just simply having um, um, uh, an argument that, well, we did these things, they're really dumb, we have to tell people they're really dumb and explain why they're really dumb really doesn't get us very far, and trying to go back to the roots of these. Where I feel about these things, I'm a historian, so I'm contrarian. In, in, in this room, I'm going to be sort of more where Tom is. And when I go see Graham Allison in a couple of hours, I'm going to be Mr. Cato. So, you know, that's, that, that's the role as a historian is to be kind of a disagree with everybody else. So, I mean, I, I, you're right. The answer is in there, whether it is worth the cost. And I don't think we've always high. These were some fairly dangerous nuclear strategies, some incredibly expensive <laughs> alliance arrangements with con which continue and some policies preventative inclinations and coercions that were <laughs> not costless there are benefits on the other side but also getting to the fact that there's a part of the puzzle that many people often had is why does the u.s do this if they're interested in stability and it's just to make the obvious point that we've never been interested in stability i mean strategic stability is easily one of the most overrated concepts the u.s always was interested in sort of having um, as much freedom of action as possible. Now, how people feel about that, I know how you know many of my my colleagues here feel about it, and I, I you know I could that wasn't the point of what I was trying to do. It was just to sort of better, for my own sake, frame what were to me puzzles that weren't satisfactorily answered in the literature as it exists. Final subs and right, um, okay. I just want to quickly comment on the. Um defense budget, I mean, I, I find that, um, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to talk myself out of a job here, by the way, <laughs> but I do, I do believe that, you know, working for the armed forces, I see an uh, incredible amount of waste on a daily basis. Uh, and I, that's one reason I like the Cato Institute in, so much, because I think it, it, takes, it takes guts in today's uh, political environment to call out the armed forces and say, hey, guys, you know, you're doing a good job. You're putting your lives on the line, but we, we can be more efficient about this. And we have to be because our schools and a variety of other uh, infrastructure issues are, are being neglected. And, you know, I say that as somebody who goes to China two or three times a year and, and rides the high speed rail all over China. The trains are, are absolutely on time, very safe and full. Uh, by my estimate, I've ridden all over the country on the high speed rail. But my estimate that layout was, you know, something over a trillion dollars. Um, I'm about to get on the train up to Providence uh, this afternoon, and I'll tell you what, it's, uh, it's, it's a joke. I mean, in most of the world, you wouldn't call that high-speed rail at all. Um, so, you know, you look at China's priorities, uh, taking, you know, in excess of a trillion dollars, not renminbi dollars, putting it into a system that revamps, truly ref changes their whole society, not to mention their economy. So, you know, th this is, I, I think as Americans, we need to reflect on that. You know, waste is waste and it is a drag on our uh, everything. You know, I see some of the brightest young people in our country are my students. And I wonder, you know, why, you know, why are they sitting around talking about, you know, Chinese uh, mine warfare or Corvettes and not out there inventing, you know, incredible things to make our economy much stronger. So, 
okay, sorry about that. Let me, let me, <laughs> I, 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 there's a lot of waste uh, that needs to be trimmed, the, including in the Navy, by the way. And a lot of it comes down to being more smart about our strategy. I'm, you know, I'm certainly not arguing for unilateral disarmament. We need to, uh, we need to have strong defenses. And, and the submarine force is, uh, I believe, a very good investment, even though they are expensive. But there are problems. Uh, here's just quickly some of the problems. Um, for one, I don't know if you realize it, but most of our effort right now at the submarine program is in changing out those, um, those what we call boomers. That is the, the really huge submarines that wander around quietly. Nobody ever talks about them and they're ready to fire nuclear weapons here. We come back to nuclear strategy here and the, the primacy that nuclear strategy has received, both in terms of you know, resources uh, and, and in the strategy generally, I think is, is misplaced. Uh, um, I would recommend that we pair back that force of boomers and put it instead toward attack submarines, which are uh, do a variety of number of things. By the way, they, in, in the old days, those attack submarines could fire nuclear weapons too. So, I mean, w- there's reason to believe, uh, you know, in many ways that we could do this more efficiently. One thing that's nice about submarines is you can move them around without, you know, uh, supercharging a crisis. The United States seems to enjoy kind of saying, we're deploying the carriers, let's have some reporters on the deck to make sure all these uh, powers behave. Um, I prefer a kind of more subtle diplomacy. And by the way, I think we've seen this a little bit in the Obama administration recently in the case of the Philippines, where some very, um, some of our really, you know, what do you want to call them? Our, our most capable vessels were deployed into the Philippines situation, uh, submarines. And, you know, not a lot of people, but I'll tell you in China, in the, in the, in, in the places where they had to be noticed, they were noticed. Uh, we know that. And so, you know, but but that we were able to do that without setting off a firestorm in China about, oh, my gosh, here's American gunboat diplomacy. Here come the carriers. This is, China, you know, American imperialism that was didn't happen because this is a very a more kind of subtle way of exercising uh, power and deterrence. So um, this just the last word on this is that the submarine fleet uh, is slated attack boat fleet is slated to go down to uh, dip to 40 boats in 2020. That's not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Now, if, if the carrier force can be trimmed very substantially, I would think it could come down to six boats or less. We could save a huge amount of money, uh, and we just need to move one, resources from one area. I think we can cut the manned bo- bomber program. I think that's, that's crazy these days. These are resources we can shift within DOD. We can still cut substantially and, and you know, as it were, have our cake and eat it too. Thanks. Questions out there? Let's go right down here in the front. I'm Dr. Curtis from the U.S. Naval Academy. I want to address two questions, one to Professor Goldstein and Mr. Gavin. First of all, um, Mr. Goldstein, I, I think in your argument is something that we're, we're going to have to deal with today because of budget cuts, sequestration, and so forth. But I also suggest that when you, you argue for eliminating the man bomber with a nuclear capability. And I didn't say, you didn't, you didn't mention anything about land-based ICBMs, but <coughs> I think we're on, t- on the road to an inter-service rivalry, okay, uh, uh, that, that, that essentially reflects back to the uh, supercarrier and the B-36 rivalry, okay? So we should be aware of that. And, and I think you get domestic politics involved in this yeah. when uh, senators from Montana, Wyoming, 
and people down in Kings Bay get involved. So I I just want to say that uh, uh, maybe you can enlighten the people at the Naval War Ca uh, Academy about this. Uh, no, the, the Naval War College. Mr. Gavin, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this same issue that I, I read your book. And, and what I'm concerned about is essentially that uh, proximity has a lot to do with people's interpretation of the security paradigm. So if you're Israel and you're facing a potential nuclear arm Iran, your perception of the threat is entirely different. So I, I've been looking at something I call multipolar regional uh, threat environments. We have to operate in those environments also. What do you think about uh, uh, a shift focus from a global uh, negotiation, say bilateral, to multilateral types of negotiations to deal with uh, nuclear proliferation? Well, just quickly, you, you do raise another point about how we decide on military spending and how we adjudicate inter-service rivalry is huge. It's, you know, at any time when the defense budget is cut, it gets much more intense. And, you know, I'm sure if we had some um, Air Force or, you know, as we call it, say green suitors here, they would probably come up here and hammer me over the head and say, you don't, you don't understand. Um, but as I say, the Navy also needs to reform a lot. You know, it, I would argue from a cultural standpoint, the Navy maybe has to change more than the other services. They say it's the most conservative of the services. And, and in a way, you think about it, the United States Navy has not fought a major uh, intense war at sea since 1945. Um, and guess what? Uh, that leaves a, a kind of, um, frankly, a lot of, um, uh, let's say, rational impulses are driving strategy. And I, the cultures, for example, um, are, you know, I I say this at some risk because I think in my chain of command, I have a lot of aviators. But the point is the, the, the who are who, you know, feel the carrier has continued uh, value. But but I think w what we need are civilian um, defense analysts who are able to question and suggest where the changes need to be made to to uh, to drive reform. It, it's very difficult. You're right. So um, I think this issue of uh, how to think about Israel and America's different interests towards Iran highlights something that I mentioned, and that is uh, what I would maybe call different notions of containment. Um, the U.S. does not want Iran to go nuclear, and if Iran decided not to go nuclear, I think that it would continue apace with its sort of lowering commitment to the Middle East and the region, meaning that they're concerned with Iran, even though the rhetoric is about they're the scary state that does these bad things and is going to give things to terrorists. I actually don't think that's what motivates U.S. policy. The U.S. has this very powerful instinct to keep anyone from getting nuclear weapons. And the, the whole rogue and terrorist thing is actually less important, I think, than the fact that for any number of reasons I laid out in the paper and the argument the U.S. just wants a less proliferated world because that's really good for the U.S. and it gives them freedom of action. Um, that's not what Israel cares about, right? I mean, Israel still has to worry about a non-nuclear Iran. So it has to worry about what Iran's geopolitical strategic interests are in the region. They're going to be a rival. And this is where 
I think you're seeing this in this incredible nervousness in Israel right now because they're very, very aware that the U.S. is shifting out of the region. And let's imagine a world where they get a decent deal. The, the U.S. gets a decent deal with Iran, and the world's happy, and the U.S. is happy. It doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily what Israel is looking for. I mean, if you were to ask, okay, we get a non-nuclear Iran and a substantially reduced U.S. presence in the region. Um, and what it highlights is that the US, our, our, Israel wants to contain Iran. Uh, the U.S. wants to contain nuclear proliferation. And for a very long time, those two goals coincided. But I think we're going to come to a period where they don't and that's what I think why um, uh, this is going to be so interesting to see this play out. The, the Israelis, when you talk to them, they have no, absolutely no doubt in Obama's sort of commitment to nuclear nonproliferation, right, um, from the very beginning. But at the same time, if, you were to, if the U.S. were to cut a deal with Iran and say, look, you know, we don't care what you do in the region, just don't get nuclear weapons, the U.S. is probably going to take that deal. That doesn't, that's not a deal Israel wants, right? So this highlights some of the tensions um, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. In terms of a, the U.S. has done very, very well by this collusive, coercive, global nonproliferation regime. Uh, the U.S. never expected it to go as well. There's these, this great document where uh, a policymaker essentially says, if we can keep West Germany non-nuclear for five years, the NPT has been, will be wildly more successful than we could ever imagine. Right? I mean, nobody in 1968 or 1970 would have predicted that, you know, that this giant sort of ruse that the U.S. was pulling on the world would actually work out. It did. And so, but, you know, of course, they're going to invest everything they can in this global regime. I think as the, as the first uh, MC of the panel, um, uh, one of the panels today, I'm going to try to get us off to a, a good start on timing. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, uh, cut us off there, but don't uh, clap yet. Um, let me make a couple of administrative notes before I loose you uh, on the hallways here. Um, we're, the break will be 15 minutes. There were restrooms both on this floor and downstairs to the left of the stairs uh, that we're embarking on now. Um, and the other thing is just to maybe reveal too much, there was sort of a, a, an interesting feel that if you have an appetite for even more of the Brendan Green, Steve Brooks uh, uh, discussion that we had and can tolerate a little bit of me in there, uh, you should get the fall issue of International Security, where uh, the excellent article that Steve wrote with John Eikenberry um, and Bill Woolforth, Brendan, I, and, and Ben Friedman, who you'll have to suffer through later in the day, um, wrote a response, and, and there was a response to the response. So if you really want to get down into the weeds with us on this, that's the place to go. Um, and now, please join me in thanking our panelists and our comments.